I am so excited to be partnering up with Gorillas again this season. The original sexy grocery delivery app is revolutionizing online shopping. Fresh food delivered to your door in minutes, catering to all your food needs. Operating in nine countries around the world, Gorillas supports small businesses as well as local producers to bring your favorite brands to your door. Run out of wine during the dinner party? Gorillas can sort that. Run out of eggs for your Sunday morning pancakes? Gorillas can also sort that. Don't believe me when I say how great they are? Then download their app and get £10 off your first order when you spend £20. Use the code SEXY10 at checkout and thank me later. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Harley-Young. This podcast is all about the love of food and how it plays a part in our lives. I sit down with well-known personalities, food experts, chefs, and people who just love their food to find out all about their life, career, and their favorite tastes along the way. Today, I'm joined by the wonderful Jack Savaretti. Jack's soulful music and sound has been with us since his first album released in 2007. Raised around Europe but from Italian heritage, Jack's music mixes acoustic guitars with folk rock and indie pop, and he's even created a new genre. More on this in a moment. He released his seventh album last year, Europeana, which encapsulates the spirit of sun-soaked days, rosé in hand, long lunches and dreamy sunsets. Sign me up. Jack, it's a pleasure. Welcome to Crazy Sexy Food. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you? It looks like the sun is creeping through your windows. I know, it's magic. I mean, I almost was going to do this outside and then I thought that would be a little bit too, <laughs> a little bit too tweed to be sitting Give out it another month. Give it another month and you'll be out there. <laughs> this morning I had a cup of coffee outside and my sort of a t-shirt. Yeah, it was nice. I mean, I'm becoming, I am, let me just clarify, I'm born in England, but I was sort of raised in Switzerland and I'm of Italian descent and origin and culture. So as much as long as I've lived here, I still feel like an Italian living in England. I don't react well to the climate. But right. actually today I can say that either I'm becoming more English um, living out here in the countryside or it was actually getting hotter. Really? Sure. Well, where I am, it's bitter. So, oh, no. um, yeah, well, it's, it's one of those deceiving mornings. Yeah. The sky is absolutely spotless. It's a beautiful blue, but it's uh, something yeah. like six degrees outside. So yeah. there we go. <laughs> um, you've been a busy man. We've been trying to organize this for a very long time. How are you? Has it just I'm been good. an absolute whirlwind? Well, you know, it's it's not busy like busy used to mean. Uh, it's yeah. busy in the sense that we're constantly having to adapt, constantly having to change. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit of a nightmare, but it's just so nice to sort of finally see this light at the end of the tunnel getting closer and closer. We're trying to get back to being busy. And we find ourselves being busier at trying to get back to being busy than actually doing what we want to be doing, if you know what I mean. It's all the sort of... Um, getting the infrastructure together so that we can get back to do what we love, which is play music, whether it be live or whether it be in a studio. That's what mm. we love to do. And all we seem to be doing is booking and canceling flights and venues and, and rearranging stuff. And that's sort of what really throws us off our game. But I'm being positive, especially here in the UK. It feels very much like we're back in the norms. Yeah. Um, I just look forward to being able to do this all over the world, especially back in Europe. Absolutely. And congratulations on the new album, which came out last year. Now, 
I sort of want to talk about what I mentioned in the intro, which is this sort of, you're either bringing back or you've created this sort of genre. Can you sort of explain it to people who might not know? Yeah, of course. So the name of the genre is Europeana, and I definitely didn't invent it, <laughs> um, but I just wanted to put a light on it. I've, it kind of came, there's two sort of stories behind it. I was on tour with an amazing artist called J.S. Ondara, who is a friend of mine from Kenyan descent who lives in America, and he made this incredible folk album, and he was touring with me around Europe, and he was supporting me, and halfway through the tour, he got a phone call saying that he was being nominated for a Grammy. And I was wow. like, wow, that's amazing. And he was like, yeah, he was nominated for a Grammy for Best Americana Award. And my band, in true locker room style, decided to take the mickey out of me that the guy opening up for me was not getting nominated for Grammys and I'll never be nominated for anything. It was good old-fashioned good old fashioned <laughs> affection backstage. <laughs> of course. Uh, and I just said, until there's an award for Best Europeana Sound, and I just threw that word out there, I'm never going to win anything. And when I said that, we all kind of went, ha, huh, that's a good point. There isn't really much representation when it comes to awards and not that I care about award ceremonies, but it kind of made me think there isn't really a sort of genre that describes European music. And a lot of the times it gets put in a very sort of kitsch genre. Um, or if you say European music, people immediately sort of go to the historic music of Eurovision and stuff like that, mm -hmm. which is more about TV in Europe, not music. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a more representation of what media is doing, but it has nothing to do with what's happening um, musically across the across the continent, so I decided that would that kind of lingered with me. Then during lockdown and not being able to travel, um, I I was really heartbroken at seeing my kids not being able to experience those summer holidays that I experienced with my parents because this was that age where they're starting to maybe stay up a bit later, starting yeah. to dance. You know, I would dance with my daughter. We had a few holidays like that, but not as many as I was fortunate to have as a kid. And they really stay with you. And what really stayed with me from those from those times was the music was sort of hearing Julio Iglesias for the first time, hearing Serge Gansberg for the first time, hearing Gypsy King for the first time, hearing Georgia Moroda, Diana Ross, this kind of sound that went from very classical European to sort of disco funk European. It was kind of 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s vibe. So I started playing all this music for my kids while we were here in lockdown to create that kind of atmosphere of holiday feeling. And while I was listening to it, I thought, why don't, why don't I listen to this music all the time? Why don't we make music like this anymore? Why don't, we, why don't we make an album that celebrates, you know, from Julio Iglesias to Daft Punk, shows the, the variety of European music. And so that's kind of what we set out to do. And it was a really fun, it was, it's, a, it's a concept album. There's, I'm not going to hide from it. It is definitely a concept album. And it goes through all the various different flavors of the genres, which are in Europeana. But it's about perpetuating that music. I'm not trying to imitate music from the 70s. I just wanted to perpetuate it and make it relevant today and, and really celebrate what wonderful music has come out of Europe, especially in pop music. And also, I think, like, the timing is so important as well. Like, we were going through what I think we will all look back one day on and tell our grandchildren, mm. you know, we lived through this moment in time that was so difficult, you know, whatever, wherever you were, whatever level you are in life and anything, you know, it's affected all of us. And so I think to have that kind of music be released rather than having to, what, to listen to like really sad, dreary songs, which don't get me wrong, I love a good sad song if, I, if I'm like in my feelings, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's something that it's, it's hopeful, Totally. It kind of just was, like, it transports you. Exactly. It was the escapism that really attracted me because yeah. exactly like you said, I did what pretty much every artist did with whatever creative field you're in. 
you we all whatever you're in actually forget creative fields we got scared you know we yeah. felt isolated it was the first time where you were in any of our lives except when we were probably grounded as a kid to be forced to stay somewhere and not really have an option and we followed it without it being an extreme law we, we followed it that showed the power of the fear that without mm. it being really implemented by law we did it um, we all really we, we really did it and that really threw me that society was just that easy that quick to sort of do this and I sat at the piano and I spoke about fear. I spoke about control. I spoke about like loneliness. I spoke about the end of the world. You know, we all had that moment. And then I thought, I'm not going to want to sing or hear this stuff at the end. of. I don't know how long this is going to be, but yeah. I don't want this. And looking out the window wasn't cutting it anymore. I wanted more. And I love travel and I missed home. I missed the Mediterranean. I really missed Europe. And um, so this was a way of doing that. It was a way of giving everybody a sort of ticket out of here. Um, without having to leave your house <laughs> well perfectly executed may I say and we will talk a little bit more about it in a bit but I always as I kickstart into the food I always <laughs> ask my guests what did you have for breakfast this morning I actually had a very trendy breakfast I did sort of Ooh. scrambled eggs on toast with avocado well trendy 10 years ago <laughs> you're such still... a millennial Jack you're such a millennial <laughs> I don't usually do that I'm really I'm actually not a breakfast person I'm quintessentially Italian in my breakfast whereas I want a juice maybe a croissant and a coffee that's it yeah that's all I can maybe a yogurt if I'm feeling really <laughs> greedy and cheeky um, but no I don't really I'm not really a breakfast person but where the kids are on holiday so it was really nice we have breakfast all together we we that's one thing in our family that is really it's an unwritten rule we eat together oh uh, you, you can, so important it's so important it's when the best chats happen it's like it's it really food uh, food sort of break make you can get away with stuff that if food wasn't there you'd probably have a fight <laughs> no totally and i have i've spoken about this in the past with with other guests and you know it was how i was raised and yeah. it, and even if people were out working or whatever my dad used to work a lot in the evening so um you know whoever was there we would sit at a table and you're absolutely mm. right and it's amazing the conversations that can happen over food i think this is why i'm this sitting is, here hosting absolutely. a podcast about it it can be an icebreaker yeah it can be a therapy session absolutely it can solve issues it can create issues it's a safe space it's a safe space <laughs> i mean although i say that having becoming from an italian family i've seen a lot of people stand up and storm off and walk away and oh i'm being sure thrown in there. plus as an italian i always i always remember i mean the, the the first meals that really you know really burnt a memory in my mind were my grandmother's i i grew up in london i was born and raised in london but i used to go visit my grandmother who was italian but lived in switzerland at the time and meals were seriously a holy moment in the house. Not breakfast again, but lunch and dinner were... Breakfast, everybody sort of did their own thing. But lunch and dinner was a family meeting. It was almost a family meeting. Mm. And before, what the, my favorite part was whenever it would get too fiery and something was about to go, it was almost as if everybody had this cue. We would start, if it was happening at lunch, you'd start talking about what you're going to eat for dinner to break, to sort of bring it back. <laughs> That was how you would dilute the situation was, or what are we going to have for lunch tomorrow? Like re, re, reinserting our sort of bringing back to bringing it back to the food basically is what kept the peace. So it was Oh, I love that. Well, you've kind of sort of very uh, seamlessly brought me onto that. So I kind of want you to tell me a little bit more about your childhood. So as you said, you were born in London, you were sort of, you, you sort of were in Switzerland for a bit, sort of. I want you to kind of paint the picture. I want to know what kind of food you were eating at home, who was cooking. Obviously, your grandma plays an important role in that. 
obviously Italian family food was clearly important. Yeah, I was very lucky and I'm very, I always feel very fortunate for this, that we were quite multicultural in my family, in a, on a European level at least, is the sense that my grandparents, well, my father's grandparents were Italian. So I was born in London, let's start from the beginning. <laughs> I was born in London um, and I grew up in London. And in London, my mother was first generation born here. Her mother was German and her father was Polish Jewish mm. and they were refugees from the war. So they ended, they ran to Paris and then they came to London. And so already in London, like when I would stay with my grandparents, it would go from like kefelta fish to like goulash, <laughs> kartoffel salad. So it was this mix of like German and then with a little bit of sort of Jewish cuisine as well thrown in oh, there. Wow. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was, so there was I love that. kefilte fish. My dad's Jewish. I think that's like the one thing I've taken from the whole thing. <laughs> matzo balls, I'm not crazy about. But Do you know what? I don't mind a matzo ball, but you know what? The, I've had some terrible ones. I don't like them yeah. really uh, stodgy. They need to be really exactly. light and fluffy. Yeah, and it's also about, I like to combine them with stuff, which I know is not the thing, but I, I, I like to do that. Um, but yeah, so we had that on one side. And then we had my father's family which was my grandmother was sicilian and my grandfather was genovese again very mm. different cuisines yeah. even though both italian so we were quite fortunate in the sense that we were as kids i wouldn't say we were brave but we were forced to eat very different types of food which has stayed which has served, served me well in life because it's made me curious i wouldn't say that i'm a very exciting eater and but i'm very curious i'll try everything i'll, I'll sort of i'll go anywhere with it uh, but that was kind of my my heritage. And like I said, meals were really a big deal. My mother wasn't really that into cooking. She is now, but we're not, we're not when we were little. She was more, she was very social. So she was always out and about. Um, but myself, I, I started cooking at a very young age. I fell in love with cooking at a very young age, mainly because I was at home a lot as a young kid, which I think does also sort of force you to have to learn how to cook, which is, a, when I say young kid, I mean teenager. You know, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't abandoned as a child to sort of have to fend my way in the kitchen, but I used to be quite creative. Um, and uh, yeah, my love for food definitely sort of started around 14, 15, same time around my love for music, poetry. I think it was that kind of that age where you realize I can control my own destiny mm. in a very sort of wonderful, naive uh, way that you sort of, these are the things that give you a real sense of control, food, creative music, art, you know, how you dress, all that kind of stuff. It all kind of happened together. This is who I am. This is what I eat. This is what I sing. This is what I listen to. It kind of all came around the same time for me. So can you give me some examples of the dishes perhaps that your grandma would cook around those big sort of family gatherings? They meetings, so many, as you call them. Yeah, there was, I mean, there were some delicious ones. We have a thing called mozzarella in carrozza in Italian, which is so simple. And it basically sounds like cheese on toast, but I guarantee you it's not cheese on toast. And it's basically where they soak the bread in olive oil and then they put uh, mozzarella in the middle of it and then they flip it like on a pan upside down. But this would be like served like they would be like, imagine a tray with like 25 of these toasties. Oh <laughs> what you, what you could only call toasties, but I promise you they're not toasties. You could be really greedy and put a little bit of butter as well on the bread, like when you're cooking it, not, not, not like the bread. When you say it's soaked in the oil, is it kind of like become like a sponge it's like exactly. squidgy so it's almost oh. like and it like think of a combination of a toasty and french eggy bread whatever it's kind of got that texture but with amazing mozzarella oh seeping my God. Out. it sounds really simple and like <laughs> the kind of thing you'd make in a at university but it's amazing so that was and maybe i'm remembering that because i was a kid and she was basically making that for the kids 
But then they used to make these terrible things. They do this thing in, in they do this thing in Italy where they leave. I seem to remember it with chicken. I can't remember the actual name of it, but they leave it in the fridge so that Jello grows around it. Basically, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And then they, and then they bring it's it. So it's part of the. It's like the gelatinous mm. sort of. Um... It was a real delicacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my parents and my grandparent, my grandparents used to be like, "Oh, we're having this," but as kids, it just looked like dog food to us. We were like, <laughs> "Oh God!" And it tasted like dog food, to be honest. But there was that, and what was really interesting about with my grandmother, and this is again, this is from being an Italian family. She came. Both my grandparents came from very sort of not noble backgrounds, but very sort of affluent backgrounds but then the war came and changed everything up and you can see how they still had this tradition and culture of making a real ceremony out of a meal mm. but it was interesting to see that they had learned the sort of trades of poverty from the war kick in so nothing was served together so i mean lunch was long like you would literally get the starters which would be like i don't know to give an example a caprese salad or something like that then you'd get a pasta like a small thing of pasta and then for the main the main would be served all separately so you would literally get like the vegetables first then the potatoes and then they would bring out the meat and the point of this and uh, coming from england that was a disaster where we're used to like a roast with like you know everything, everything. on the one plate yeah. <laughs> everything on the one plate and gravy for example wasn't a thing i remember my mom introducing gravy to the meal and it was like sacrilegious for a few months but then my grandmother was converted <laughs> to gravy or a jus or something like that to sort of dry stop it from being so dry but yeah because of the war and having not that much food not that much meat especially that was kind of how they would do it um, where they would sort of fill you up so that by the time you got to the meat, you weren't that hungry. You would That's do it so to show. interesting. Yeah. It was sort of to show that you had the culture and the, and you had the wealth for meat, but you didn't really have enough of it to yeah. feed a family. So it was kind of, uh, it was more show than anything. And she still had that mentality. Wow. I mean, it's kind of like when they say, you know, I'm a really, really fast eater. And so my brain doesn't catch up with my stomach and that's why people <laughs> overeat so I guess oh, really? that's exa well yeah that's that's one of the reasons why um I mean <laughs> I'm I greedy that. so that's just my <laughs> issue in general I'm, I'm gonna be I'm, using that now because yeah, I, no, I know I know but it's true that if you actually ate really really slow you will probably get full quicker than if you ate really quickly and so I'm just picking up on what you said about them sense. sort of like separating the, the, the components down. of the main course means that you're going to fill up on your vegetables and your carbs, like your potatoes, exactly. so that if there was very little meat, Perfect. that was fine because you were exactly. kind of full anyways. It's a exactly. very interesting it's almost a way gesture. of doing The it. meat at the end was almost a gesture. Sort of yeah, thing. yeah, really so interesting. That, that's, that's my greatest memory of, of my first sort of real, you know, introduction. Also, it was very strange for me coming again, growing up in England. This was until I was about eight, where, you know, we would eat at, we'd have tea time, not dinner when you went to visit my family in Italy, not you sat at dinner. It didn't matter how mm. old you were, whether you were a baby or whether you were 95 on your deathbed, you sat at the dinner table. <laughs> you didn't have it before. Like what? Who has dinner at six? Yeah. <laughs> they were, they, like, are you crazy? They were, you can have a snack at 4.30, merenda, we call it. Yeah. Like, you can have a little thing at 4.30, but then you sit at dinner. And so coming from, you know, and we'd get dressed up. Like I remember, well, dressed up, I'd put a shirt on, but you had to like sort of make make an it was, effort it was, it was a real thing it wasn't like black tie and all that but it was like you had to look the part you couldn't just show up in yeah. what you were wearing that day if you were covered with mud from playing in the park go change it was all Absolutely. that kind of thing
And I've yeah, tried I, to install that with Mike. I've tried. Yeah, and you know what? I like that though. And it, and it still is just going back to that dinner table. And I think the importance of sitting around as a family, whoever yeah. might be there, you know, um, or just even if, you know, some people might not have a table, just sitting around sharing food. For me, yeah. the act of that, I think is so important. You mentioned something about how your love of food kind of developed around the same time as your music and um, your love of poetry. Because I actually, um, as a child, was really into poetry and I used to enter poetry reading <laughs> competitions and whatnot. So when, when How I, old? Like what sort of age? Uh, during my teens. Yeah. Same because thing. when I was younger, I um, was incredibly shy. So my mum sent me for elocution lessons and part of the elocution lessons I had to stand up in front of this lovely lady who I'm sure isn't with us because she was probably like 85 at the time. And she would teach me how to, it was all about public speaking, holding yourself, reading poems. And I used to think, oh my God, I'm such a nerd. But then when I read about other people, like, you know, when I'm doing the research on you and I'm Mm. like, no, I was actually probably quite cool. Or or I was a nerd too. (laughs) Maybe, whatever. I was very, believe it or not, I was very shy as a child. Mm. I was very quiet. Um, yeah. which has changed with age i've something something opened at some point well i met my wife and she was like you're not quiet you never shut up stop <laughs> stop stop telling yourself stop you're quiet. i think it was my own projection i was sort of predicting on myself that i was quiet but i think i was very chatty but when i was really in my sort of 13 14 and it was probably due to circumstances around me parents getting divorced moving mm. being in a different country moving school like three times over two years that's enough to even the most confident of us it'll shake you It'll make you question, you know, yourself and poetry, especially because academically I was really lousy. And it's funny you say this about elocution, because I think the rhythm of poetry, same with music, is so important. I mean, it is used all the time for for helping in this field, in this in this area, because the rhythm of it allows you to sort of stop thinking about what you're saying or how it's being perceived. And you're more focused on actually the the rhythm of it. So you lose. It's a bit like, I mean, I don't want to use this comparison, but it's a bit like if you ever learn another language, it's amazing how after a glass of wine, you're suddenly fluent. <laughs> Listen, Jack, after a glass of wine, I'm fluent in French, Italian. I do the best Irish accent. Um, I mean... That's like the only accent that's kind of okay to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am like fully going for it. I don't even know who I am by that point. But no, Uh, it is really interesting. You're absolutely right. Because it it takes you away from those insecurities that you probably have. That are lying underneath. That are causing you to be quite shy or quiet. So kind of bringing it to the music. um, And I was sort of reading through your career. And, you know, it's... It's been actually a really lovely sort of trajectory that you were on. How was the experience of kind of breaking into the industry for you? The industry was not great. It's still not great. It's it's kind of an oxymoron, you know, the music industry. (laughs) The whole thing of it is a bit, it's a bit strange. It's very dated. I feel like that's being, that's coming to the forefront now. Um, And I was kind of, I had a lot of doors slammed in my face very early on for many reasons, for many also due to the fact that I wasn't good enough at some points. I'll definitely take that on the chin. Um, But a lot of it was to do, you know, I was asked to change my name, I think, three times. Um, Why? Savoretti wasn't exactly, you know, I remember being told they would have to put me, this was by a top exec, I won't say names, but if I retained that name, they would have to put me in the world music section. 
Stop um, it. Yeah, this was, I was, I remember, I remember I was 19. Oh, I remember, sake. I'll say he, I won't say who it was, but I'll say he, he leaned back on his chair and put his feet on the desk and said, I love it, but we have to change your name. And to which I said, why? He said, because we don't want, he says, we don't want to be looking for you in the world music section was his comment. And I said, what about Frank Sinatra? And he said, well, Frank Sinatra was Frank Sinatra. And I was like, well, wow. we're not going to work together. This isn't going to be good. Um, and I brought up a few. I brought up Nathleen Brulia. I brought up Frank Sinatra. I was like, I, I don't could, see I could the problem. I could name pretty every much everyone on my playlist right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't really see this. It, it's, it's worked out for a, for a bunch of people. And also, I don't really make... I, first of all, I hate the expression world music. Yeah. That's one thing that already gets out of What does that skin. even mean, world well, music? It means not English music, basically. But like, but like what? So we're just going to categorize everything that isn't made or in exactly. England. Wow. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's really what it feels like, which I mm. hate that. And I love music from all over the world. So I go on about this. I hate that expression. So yeah. he already tickled me the wrong way with that. Um but no, but I, I, so going back to the industry, aside from that experience, you know, you start this, it's an industry that invites you in at a very young age, at a younger age than most industries do. And talent or not, you're still, you're still young. You still don't really understand how it works. I was super, I was very young when I arrived knocking at any doors. I think I was 20, 19 or 20 when I sort of first started. I was 21 when my first album came out in 2006 or something around there, 2005, 2006. And I had no idea. I didn't even know what the word industry even meant. I didn't know how any of this worked. I just wanted to play songs and go around playing, making music, which was naive in itself because I didn't realize the amount of money you need to do that and how yeah. difficult that is, you know, just to take a car up and down the country. You'd be surprising. You'd be surprised how expensive that is when you've got, you know, one other guy in the car with you, let alone four other musicians. Um, so all of these things were a learning curve. I wasn't really welcomed in open arms. Um, I ended up having every cliche bad story in a book very early on. And this is one advice I would give to people starting out. Fail as quick as you can, because that's a true understanding of if you're in it for the right reasons, if you're in it for the long run, or if you're just passing through and you should get out. If you're just passing through, don't waste your life in this world. Mm. There's other things you can do, like move on. Um, because it can get vicious um, and it doesn't lead to much if you're not really in it. And so my failures at the beginning were the best lesson I got because I walked away. I, I In here, in my head, I planned, I'm out. This is horrible. I don't want to work. I was so angry at an industry that was basically stopping me from doing something I loved. I felt like they weren't not only inviting me, they were stopping me. It got to a point for reasons I won't get into now legally, um, but it got to a point where I was basically being stopped like you cannot work. And that was infuriating. That really threw me. But it was kind of the flame that I hadn't been able to light before this happened. I loved writing songs. I trusted in music. I was very easygoing about it. I was not driven. I wasn't looking for fame, fortune, success. I really wasn't. I just was really concerned about, can I write a great song? I liked the certain ideology of you know, I was very into sort of Cali 60s California and this kind of peace-free way of living life, of just kind of getting, riding the wave of music. And that there was no real ambition to it. But once I got properly kicked to the floor, boy, did that light the ambition flame in me that I didn't know mm. I had. And I just realized I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to let anyone tell me what I can and can't do. And that's what it felt like. And it was the first time I felt that. My parents were fair. They were just, but they weren't disciplinarian. 
they would let me mess up on my own. And then they would kind of go, I told you, <laughs> like they would point it out. They would make me know that they were watching when I messed up, but they never, they never disciplined. You know, I never had that. I would just feel pretty silly myself. This was the first time somebody was truly interfering with my, my path. And so I decided to rebuild an entire team based on built from people that had nothing to do with the music industry. So I started out with friends and it was a sort of like, who's in, <laughs> who's up for this? This is going to be a horrible, long, crazy journey, but I think we might have some fun on the way. And lucky for me, I have some amazing friends who jumped on board. One being my manager, who's been with me for almost 20 years now, 15, 15 years. Um, and then I sort of started meeting people around my other manager, Danielle Livesey. Um, she was, she had done this sort of charity event, raising awareness for Israel and Palestine. And she'd used one of my songs for this incredible project where she was giving, she had managed to get um, Apple computers and these various things to sort of give these kids on both sides um, to make sort of movies of their lives, a day in the life of basically. Wow. And she had, she had just done this amazing thing in, in the space of like a month. And th that was the kind of people I wanted to work with. And I sort of asked, I was like, would you help me? Um, you know, she was, she had the, her heart in the right place. She was open to causes, to using music in the right way, not just the way the industry sometimes gets focused on. So I built this team around me and then find the musicians. And yeah, we've been kind of going for 15 years and it just started going slowly, but it always started going up. And I was always okay with that. I always have to check on my team if they're okay with that because we're always going up, but we never rush. We do everything. Every, I just want this to keep going. Like, this is for life. <laughs> this isn't a phase. This isn't something I was doing because, oh, I, it was really, this is what I, I, I've tried to walk away from it numerous times in my life. I can't. I will always go home and sit at a piano, play a guitar. So I might as well use it for something, for good, to take care of my family and to potentially, you know, provide some sort of something for those who need it. Um, and it's not, I think the music we make and the way we go about our business we don't bombard people with stuff. We don't try to like, you know, get to the top. We're not pushing people out the way to get there. We're just slowly putting it in places where we think it might be appreciated or, or needed. And I'm surrounded by people who help me do that. Thank you for your honesty. That was a really interesting um, sort of, it was just interesting hearing that. Something you just mentioned, actually, um, I really, really agree. And I think can be used for all types of careers. When you said that I don't rush, and I think that in the world we live in now, which is whether you agree with it or not, you know, we've kind of, we battle with this whole new world of social media, mm. the internet, and gen new generations coming up who think that things just come to them like that, uh, who have lived through, I know I have through all of these sorts of like reality shows, uh, music shows where you become famous overnight. And what I find so dangerous about all of that world is that there's no longevity in it and you can become famous if that's what you want to do or whatever but will you sustain that for 30 years 40 years if you take it slowly and you do it right like what you're doing and okay you've walked away a couple times yeah the, the, there's the greater good in that and I just I, think that I, there's a younger generation that honestly think, oh, no, 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 I'm, like, I'm just going to go on that show. I'm going to do this. And that that's me set for life. It's, it's not. I mean, this is the thing. You can get rich quick and you can get famous yeah. really quick these days. You really can. But are you sure that's what you want? 
And I know it seems like it, like it, it takes a, it can take a lifetime to realize, ah, damn it. <laughs> I've got it all and I've got nothing. Yeah. Uh, and that can happen on other sides. I'm not saying it's just with fortune and fame. You know, it can happen from walking away from careers. I know people that are resentful because they chose to start families and stuff. And now they feel like they don't have the careers they deserve. So it can happen on both sides. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a fortune and fame issue. I think you're absolutely right. It's the tools and the means that we have right now. The false sense of relevance that social media gives people is so dangerous in the sense that the kick, the dopamine kick, that yeah. is so addictive. And we have created a generation of addicts mm -hmm. of a very dangerous tool. Like it's literally as if we might have been, you know, giving our 12 year olds tequila shots every night and said, don't worry, it, it'll, it'll chill yeah, you out a bit, completely. you know, distract, it'll keep you busy for a bit. I mean, it's pretty far out. We still don't know the damage from it. I mean, it'll, it'll take a generation for us to sort of see from it. And I'm not against social media, but it's, it, it's lack of sort of control, how it's so un controlled and well and it's wild. well it's an unregulated industry that's I mean. right regulated, that's that's yeah. the problem and sorry the and, word and, is regulated yeah and i completely agree with you i think it's amazing I, i it has its purpose you know there's certain things that i wouldn't be doing in my life had it not been for social media totally. but at the same time i think you have to go into it with the with the frame of mind of it does a certain purpose it doesn't it's not the be all and end all No, right, absolutely. you know, you've got to be able to step away and sort of be in reality for a second and, and like understand. You said, it, and it does give a sense of, damn it, I've got to get it today. I've got to do this. Like, why am I not doing that? Yeah, it does give you this pressure. It's pressure, and pressure is the is the is the real destroyer of dreams. Uh, expectation and pressure are two things that will mess you up. If you have a dream, the only two things that I think can really kill it is expectations and pressure. And I've done everything in my life. I have zero expectations, which I have not worked on. It's a blessing. <laughs> I thank whoever whoever made me or, well, I thank my parents. <laughs> my parents had no expectations of me growing up. They never imposed expectations. If I said tomorrow to my dad, I'm going to be a space, I'm going to be an astronaut. He'd go, wow. <laughs> like that was literally his answer. It wasn't like, get out of here, you schmuck. Go, you know, go do yeah. something serious, be a lawyer. No, he would literally be like, go, let me know how it goes. My parents had that. So I've always had that. I tried to do that with my kids. They let me discover who I was without their expectations. Therefore, I have no expectations. I'm, I'm learning as I go. Everything, every time I get a phone call, it blows my mind. I'm literally like, hey, it still, mm, it still surprises mm. me. And I hope I retain that. I felt pressure. I've definitely imposed pressure on myself. But most of the time, it's because of my peers. And it's come from my peers. And I'm okay with it coming from my peers when they are friends, colleagues, and people I admire. But I'm not okay when it comes from some person I don't know or respect, but I'm watching them do something I really want to be doing right now, and therefore I feel pressure. That's messed up. That, yeah. uh, and I feel for the We generation. all have it. I have it. Yeah. I have it. And I, and I have to just keep reminding myself. And I mean, we need more of you, Jack, because you talk <laughs> about the la lack of expectations is amazing. I'm going to take a leaf out of your book because my issue is that I have too many expectations, not just of people, but of the world. So I'm yeah. constantly getting disappointed. But, I, you know, that's something that obviously I need to work on. It's a pandemic. That's a serious pandemic. Well, it's there we go. <laughs> yeah, Forget exactly. COVID. Expectations yeah. <laughs> is doing as much damage. Yeah. No, you're <laughs> You're right you're right um we were talking before we started recording that um it's funny how this meeting has kind of come around full circle for me because i was introduced to you actually in 2012 uh, through a mutual friend um yeah. and i saw you play at bush hall in shepherd's bush 
which is now round the corner from where uh-huh. I live. And I do remember that night vividly. And I remember being right at the front with my friend and I thought, God, this guy. I mean, not <laughs> only is he good looking, but he sings bloody well. Yeah, and Thanks, and I God. really am so happy that, you know, okay, you've had your peaks and troughs, but yeah. as you've said, you stepped back a few times and that just made you realize even more how much you wanted it. And that's what I love about it. Tell me, what's it like performing live to an audience? And I know you haven't been able to do it much over the past couple of years, but because you've got a tour coming up. I do. I do have a tour. Ooh, I like what you did there. A little <laughs> bit of plugging. Look at you. You're good. <laughs> I should be doing that. <laughs> well played. Don't you worry. I've got it all here. <laughs> that was very smooth. You had me at Bush Hall. I was really <laughs> captivated. Um, yeah, we are going on tour. I have a love and hate relationship with playing um with touring i should say i love playing live i i you know if anybody walks into my living room i'm not that annoying where i'm the guy who brings out a guitar and kills the party i've always made sure never to be that guy even in the early days you know read the room is what i always say to some of my friends i'm like dude not the right time no you gotta listen to this love song i wrote no it's like 20 people here who don't know you and everybody's off their tits oh my god i love it no no i've never been that guy and i hope not to be but i do love playing for people if somebody says play us a song i'll jump to it i'm not that own you don't have to twist my arm put it that way um but um i touring is tough man it's tough like the older we get i have family now um do they come with you or do they stay back no they're too young and you know touring is still we're not exactly private jetting it and five-star hoteling it (laughs) yet i should say say, yet no expectations but just not yet yet. no expectations (laughs) it might happen it might not it probably will but no expectations (laughs) but no i mean we do travel wonderfully we travel in style for us as musicians but no it's no place for kids put it that Mm. way and although most of us are all dads on the tour now, so times have changed, which is really nice. We all kind of get our homesickness together, sit around and show photos of our kids together. I mean, it's, it's very different from how it used to be. I can't imagine what it's going to be like post-COVID. I think we're all going to be absolute basket cases uh, yeah. throughout the whole tour. But I am looking forward to it. We did a few shows recently just to sort of get our bearings back. And it blew my mind how great it felt. Like I had forgotten. I've taken it for granted numerous times. I always admit to this, um, you know, even with fans, when we meet them, I take for granted of how much, you know, I'll see a touring schedule and go, oh my God, how are we going to do this? This is going to be, it's physically demanding. It's emotionally demanding. It's probably the only time I truly get stressed because I worry about being, not getting ill. You, there's all these things you worry about or hoping that somebody else, you know, it takes one, one, one guy in your team to sort of not feel right or whatever. And this, everybody is vital. In my in my team, at least, everybody is vital. There isn't anybody there just for the sake of being there. Everybody matters. So when one of your players can't play, it's like, oh, man, <laughs> it's stressful. Um, but then we start and we do it, and I see my amazing team again and watch everybody who's so amazing at what they do. I get inspired by that. I get pushed by that. And then we play to people, and you hear a room of people singing something you, know, you wrote in this room and something you never believed would see the light of day come to life, and you see – you just see the reaction and that's something that over lockdown i really i mean i not that i i didn't miss it it almost killed me like at the beginning mm-hmm. i started having to do i did this thing on instagram where i did a cover song a day for i think i did like 50 in the end 
And it was a way for me. I just got this piano just before lockdown by the grace of God. And so I, I wanted to learn how to play it because I don't really know how to play the piano. So I sat here every day learning a song and I did it on Instagram and I shared it with people on Instagram. And to be honest, I did that for me as much as I did it for them. I really missed that connection. I loved feeling like my music had a purpose. It wasn't just for me. Um, and that's something that I've been hooked to without even, I didn't go out looking for that, but I've definitely become hooked to the fact that the mu it can do something. You can write a song that makes a couple hold each other tighter in the crowd. You can make a song that makes somebody cry. And when you see that, it's really hard not to get that. Not mm. When you write a song, you want to like say, go out there and do it. Go out there and not help. That feels you know, condescending or sort of patronizing, but go out there and, you know, and connect. And feel connect. it with them. Yeah, connect, connect with them. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I love the connection of live music. And when you are on tour, what's your eating like? Because I know it can be a bit all over the place if you're sort of traveling from one place to another. Are you are you quite strict on your sort of eating when you're I'm on strict the in the sense that we have to eat good food. No, yeah. I'm not sort of health strict. I'm strict in the sense that, you know, Every country is different to tour. Obviously, it, I'm not saying this. I am biased, but Italy is unreal to tour. It's unreal. I mean, you stop at a gas station in Italy for anybody who's been to Italy, and you will. It's like walking into the Harrods food department. <laughs> it <laughs> is. I've done it myself. It's amazing. It's, it's insane. Like the salamis and wines from. They the stared at me once, and I was there with like a cart, and I'm just like grabbing things. They're like, "Do you want petrol?" And I'm like, "Nope. <laughs> I want your cheeses. I want your 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 meats. I want everything." <laughs> And the sandwiches, the, I mean, I don't oh. know, the auto grill is just, I mean, that should have a Michelin star, <laughs> yes. if you ask me. It's incredible. Um, England has gotten much better. When I started, you know, I started doing this, what am I, I'm 38 now, I started doing this when I was like 21. So, you know, almost 20 years ago, oof, it was tough. It was yeah. really tough. The freeways were not exactly filled with good food, and that was tough. But that's when we became – one of my guitarists at the times was a chef. He actually was an incredible chef who worked for Jamie Oliver. So oh, he wow. was – he was, and he also really got me. He was Danish, but he cooked the most amazing Italian food I've ever had and amazing Indian food. He was an incredible chef. Um, but he used to sort of, when we were really traveling bad, you know, these were, these were the tough times where we were properly playing tough venues, tough clubs. He would, he had this sort of guide, whether it was not Michelin, but he would just know where to go and take us to these incredible places. Took us to this amazing Portuguese restaurant in Manchester where they explained to us that like, um, all the tempura is actually was brought by the Brazilians to Asia and all this kind of, all these different cuisines that we thought were Asian were actually brought by the Portuguese mm. and they would sort of, they would educate you on that. He took us to this incredible Thai restaurant in Hull, an amazing Indian in Wolverhampton that I think was on the Michelin guide, but you oh, wouldn't wow. have known it. It wasn't fancy. It was proper. Like, so yeah. yeah, so we've always been, we're foodies. Everybody on my, in my band is a foodie, even in the crew. Like we're not, we're not sort of kebabs and pizza after the show. Uh, I mean, you, occasionally. Um, <laughs> occasionally. Yeah, <laughs> no judgment. Um, do you eat before you perform or do you like I, to go sort of fasted? I, no, I try not to, but I have to, you have to have something mm. for energy levels. You have to have something. It's the, it's one of the most complicated parts about scheduling a day on tour. Yeah. It sounds silly, but for me, it's very important for some people it isn't. Um, you know, I have made the mistake uh, of, going on stage right after scoffing my face with a curry in Birmingham and you know and you're sort of like this is going to be a long show 
<laughs> I don't mean in any gross way, by the way. I no, just no, mean no, no, I get it. I get try it. Try singing yeah. after eating a curry. It's it's not pleasant. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not I'm not even a professional singer, and I couldn't even do it after a curry. <laughs> it's 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 interesting to say the least. That yeah. microphone goes in the bin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Sorry, that's disgusting. <laughs> so um, I always ask um, musicians who come on, what do you put on your rider? Food wise. Just like what what's going on in the green room backstage? What's on there? there? There's no blue M and M's. Whatever, what is it? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, there's no that. Which I love about that story because it's very clever. They did that so that they could see if the stage promoter was actually reading all the info, and they knew that if that was done, then all the technical side would be really good because it no. meant that the product. And it's it was that's why they did it, which is very clever. I it's, it's not a bad idea. Um, so we have uh, well, we got to have our bottle of Portofino gin backstage. That's like token now. Um. We're big sort of, like I said, because we're foodies, we're quite healthy. It's all, we always ask for Italian and French meats and cheese and avocados. I mean, we're quite, it's not as rock and roll as it used to be, sort of Jameson and a pack of cigarettes. Now it's like <laughs> avocados and Italian and French cheese. Um, a nice bottle of red, preferably Italian or French, again. Um, I'm literally going through my rider now in my head. I uh, love it, though. I think it's such an interesting thing to find out about people. And good bread. is We, we literally yeah. put good bread, variety of good bread. Um, because we have catering, so cater and our caterers are amazing, and they're really good, and they they keep us sort of healthy while we go on. Um, and so I and we're quite strict on that, on having a variety. We try to all eat light. Um, yeah, it's it's sort mm -hmm. of you you learn doing this that bad food on tour will m not only health wise mess you up, it helps it people get nasty. People fight. People get sad. They get quite down. Um, it's amazing how if you have like a fast food night, I can guarantee you the next day people are homesick. Mm. It's like this weird That's thing. Interesting. Suddenly people get like just moody. Uh, and, and whether it's if you have like an amazing dinner and everybody's eating well and you have good wine and good food, the morale stays just really high. I should say it's more morale than psychological but i think it does affect psychologically as I, well it, it, i think it's psychological 100 yeah. percent. i always say this um we also have another connection i just realized um in the form of yeah exactly <laughs> we're gonna find out we're related now um in the form of mr nile rogers oh wow so nile has been a previous guest on oh, the podcast wicked. um a few seasons ago he's also a very dear friend of uh, my family oh. um, and I mean having him on the show uh, on the podcast talking about food was sort of one of my uh, moments in he, life I mean, that I'll never got, forget he's got stories he's got stories oh, has he got stories so he is on the album that came out last year um, and how was that experience wow well, it was it was really amazing because from my point of view it was quite calculated and he, and he knows this um, because when I was doing the not calculated in the sense of like I want now Rogers but in the sense of well it was naively calculated I was gonna me. say I mean I want now Rogers too but you <laughs> yeah, know exactly. I mean I can't tell you if I had a dollar for every time in a studio I've said can I put some now Rogers style guitar here that and of course doing yeah. a terrible attempt at it but it's it's just a thing yeah. it's when you want to make especially and what i don't think he realized especially when you want to make something sound quite europeana mm. um, and so i was writing this song with a guy called mark ralph and we were sort of getting stuck on it and trying to move with it and we now roger's name came up mark had worked with now and he said why don't we reach out to now and see if he'll get involved with it and get finish it up with us so i thought that was amazing and when me and now spoke for the first time i sort of said to him listen 
it's, a, it's such an honor to have you and everything. But I really want you to know the fundamental reason you're here is because I don't know if you're aware of it, but I think there's this genre that hasn't been recognized called Europeana. And I think you're the godfather of it. You're kind of the reason it happened because European music has had these kind of three traditions of nostalgia, storytelling, and melody. Those three things are always in European music. They aren't necessarily in American music. And the aspiration behind European music is very different to the aspiration in America. Like disco in America was an underground, it was almost illegal for mm. many, for, for, for at, the, at the beginning of it. Disco in Europe is a glamour thing. It was a thing almost of luxury, of mm. like the good life. So it has these different, it comes from different places. Are you aware of this? And he says, am I aware of it? He's like, I brought disco to Europe. He's like, I used to play, and I, I grew up in a place called Portofino, which is a small bay in between. I grew up. I used to spend all my summers there as a kid. It's a bay near Genoa. And in between there, there's a place called Santa Margarita. Niall lived in Santa Margarita, he, he then tells me. And there's nice. a famous club there that I used to go to when I was a kid that he played at in the 70s. And I actually asked my dad about this, and my dad saw him play there. He was the musical director of this club, and he was the musical director of about four of the biggest clubs in Italy, in, and the south of France in the late, early 70s. So he did bring this music there. It was all these Italian bands. He said it was all these Italian bands that wanted to play Barry White music, and they brought me in to teach them how to play it. <laughs> so he went there, and he changed the sound, and he ended up working with Patti Bravo, all these different Italian artists. He worked with Giorgio Moroder. He worked with all these different French uh, artists as well. And suddenly Julio Iglesias, Serge Gansberg, all these guys started using like this disco funk on a lot of their music and he revolutionized European music. So he was like, yes, I do know it. So now we always laugh that I call him the godfather of Europeana. And it was a perfect, and then he came on and did what amazing. he does. Amazing. When I, um, when he came on, um, I don't know how we got onto this. Con well, no, I do know how we got onto the conversation because it's a podcast about food, funnily enough, Anna. <laughs> Hello. Uh, what are you doing here? I don't know. I'm tired. What's going on? I had too much wine last night. I think I'm hungover. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> me, me too. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> um, he was talking about his famous pasta, which he calls salsa verde. I, I think I'm it's... always questionable about this. You've already got my, my the hair on the back right. of my neck. <laughs> so he then, so there's me just like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm just making like pasta, like, you know, the most famous person I know is probably the girl around the bloody corner. I don't know. <laughs> He's like, well, I made this pasta for Oprah Winfrey. And if you ever see her, and I was like, yeah, actually, I'm probably gonna have a call with her later on today, obviously. Um, ask her what her favorite pasta is because, oh, and man. I was literally like listening to this, sto this story and I was like, yeah, I, I mean, I can't compete with this. It yeah, is he's what got it a is. bag full of name drop. I mean, he knows how to <laughs> drop them in. And you're like, okay, now. You and, know, and, just, and, just and, my and, old and, mate, Oprah, you know? He'll always ask. Do you know, do you know, do you know, do you know, like he'll, he'll say it like as if it's, you know, Bob from down the street. You're right. Literally. He'll always say, do you know, you know Bob Marley? Have you, did you know me, Bob Marley? I'm like, no, I didn't mean Bob. Oh, I had this party with Bob once. And he, but he's really genuine about it. I like, mean. I think in his world, it's just normal that he's rubbing shoulders all the time. But you know what's what I love about him as well is that he says it so humbly. It's not like he's trying no, to brag or, you know what I mean? Like he is what he is. Yeah, but he does know these people. He's still yeah. excited by it. Yeah. Like if Paul McCartney walks in, he gets a buzz. Yeah. Even though they've, like, it's wicked. Known each gets, other for years or whatever. Yeah, it's we wonderful. On, we did the Grant Norton show with him and David Grohl was on. And they oh, were cool. both like, like schoolboy, like, ah! <laughs> like sort of hugging each other. I love it. And they were so sweet to us too. They didn't make us feel, you know, we were there in awe of these sort of, mm. you know, Hall of Fame giants. And they took us all under their wing for the night and they were great. It was wicked. Yeah, but that's why he's still there. 
that's, exactly. that's based on it. So back to the food, I just yes. want to focus a little bit on Italian food because I'm going to say something quite controversial. Am I about to hang up? <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, no. So just, just to like sort of cover myself, yeah. Italian food is probably one of, of two, my favorite cuisines in life because I just love the simplicity of it. I love the fact that it's about the produce and the ingredients. And the, I don't know any other cuisine where you could literally just have a tomato and some bread and, and be yeah, yeah. so happy in life. So true. I don't think... There really, truly is that great of Italian in the UK. I agree. I totally agree. I haven't. And I and I've been to the most expensive, and I've been to the cheapest. Trullo is good. Trullo is very good. I like Trullo. um, Are they the because Trullo part of Padella? Oh, I I don't know. I don't know. Am I getting confused? Trullo is like in Islington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's part. Of, I think they have Padella as well. That's, that's legit. Although he's not Italian. Which, no, but so, like, but okay. isn't that more of just like a concept? Is that not just yeah. a pasta restaurant? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't I feel like we get what you what you get. You know, Rome is my favorite city in Europe. Rome is incredible. Even if you go to the 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 tourist trap, yeah, it's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's still good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still good. <laughs> I'm so glad you agree. I was worried about where that was going to go. No, but no. Venice, just... Venice is the dodgy one. Venice, you have to know. Venice. Okay. Venice. They, it's the one place in Italy where you can really eat junk. Like, really, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it caters. I mean, it caters to sort of like a lot of mass tourism, mm. and they've just they've they it's money has surpassed it. Whereas Rome, even though it's catering to tourists, and you do go to the trap where they sort of call you in and all that. I, if you have a matriciana or if you have mm. a cacio pepe, it still blows your mind. Mm. It's still like wow. So, I mean, I, I hope that people know this, but obviously Italy is not just Italian food. It's obviously very regional, as you were sort of mentioning earlier. Entirely so where, region, where yeah. is your favorite sort of region? Liguria. I'm from Liguria, which is Genoa, which is just on the border with the south of France. You cross into Italy and that's, that's basically Liguria. Um, and so, yeah, my, I was brought up on octopus salad is still my mm. sort of like go-to place, which is very simple. It's boiled octopus chopped up with potatoes. Uh, parsley and and then a lemon and olive oil on top if you want sometimes they throw olives in and all that i like it perfect to be honest i prefer really simple which is literally boiled potatoes boiled octopus oil and lemon sounds like prison food it's unbelievable it's delicious um and then pesto is obviously genovese and when i say pesto i don't mean what you get here <laughs> in a jar uh, pesto should be almost like pistachio green it should almost yeah. be like it shouldn't be dark green um, it should be it, sort of edging on looking like it's a bit creamy but not yeah it yeah. totally should pecorino like you can do yeah. a mix of pecorino and parmesan uh, or you can just do parmesan it's still delicious pecorino just gives it a little bit more of that sort of milkiness pine nuts basil olive oil one clove of garlic salt that's it it's literally you can do it in five minutes uh, and it's unreal. That going back to before, that with a bottle of good white or rosé in the summer. Uh, oh. And if you do it fresh at home, the difference will blow your mind. You, yeah. you, you will you will sort of be mind blown. And it, where we come in Genova, they do that with trofie, uh, with gnocchi, but they do it with lasagna, which is amazing. So it's when I say lasagna, it's not like pasta meat and all that. It's just the sheets. Lasagna okay. is actually the name of the sh- the sheet of yeah. pasta. It's not the sort of. So it's just they put like. Think of like a square sheet of pasta like that. They'll just put two on top of each other like that. And then the pesto sauce above. It is unreal. It's like four pieces of paper, two pieces of paper like that. And then pesto sauce on the top. Oh, I'm going to have to make that. Lasagna al pesto is epic. Um, 
And then what else is sort of very traditional from, from there? That's all I can really think of. Do you I cook have... at home? Are you a big cook? Yeah, my wife and I both cook a lot. What's and your specialities? Pesto is definitely mine. A matriciana um, is also the pasta. I do make it. A matriciana is a Roman one where it's basically guanciale, the cheek of a pig. Or bacon, if you really have to. I mean, that's sacrilegious. But if you can't find guanciale, pancetta is fine. Um, and then just tomatoes and garlic. And yeah, it's amazing. And uh, that's one of my favorite pastas in general. We do cacciapepe. We do carbonara. Um, carbonara is a big, I, you know, teaching my English family that a carbonara doesn't have cream in it was a very big debate. That is household. a big one. Very big. There's no creme fraiche. No. <laughs> carbonara, no, no. for the record. There's nothing in the carbonara. It's just yeah. bacon, pecorino, and egg. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And the egg goes on at the end. Like, don't yeah. even cook. Anyway, but that's for another time. I'm sure yeah. everybody watching this knows how to make a carbonara. <laughs> I don't think I'm... <laughs> I don't think I'm in like Well, you, no, you'd be surprised how many people don't. Yeah, that, know I know I'm not. That's Trust the problem. Me. You know. I've had to be very polite at many a dinner yeah. parties. Like yeah. Um, but we also make a killer lamb, um, which was actually, it was my chef guitarist, uh, a guy called Nikolai Jewel Christensen, who actually now has a wonderful cooking show in Denmark. Um, but it's all about sort of, uh, he hunts and then cooks and prepares and all that. It's amazing. It's quite wild. Um, and, but he taught me the trick about the anchovies in the lamb when you're cooking a shoulder of lamb you basically uh poke it give it all the it holds and you put an anchovy in clove of garlic rosemary anchovy clove of garlic rosemary anchovy clove of garlic rosemary and you so it basically has these like rosemary little crown around the thing and the the anchovy melts when you cook it oh so it becomes God. this ridiculous butter and it makes the meat like it'll blow your mind so the garlic and the anchovy sort of infuse and melt into this garlicky butter. I know it sounds like what? Uh, no, it's, it sounds incredible. I'm literally sitting here like. But they use gosh, anchovies. Listen, quite Jack Savaretti needs his own cooking show. I don't know about you, but. At home with the Savarettis. <laughs> literally. <laughs> I think there's enough Anglo Italian chefs on TV. Well, mm, yeah. <laughs> they can never be enough. Never, never <laughs> they can never be enough. Never enough. Never enough. When you are out and about, where are some of your favorite restaurants to go to? Well, Trullo in London is definitely up there. That's one of my favorites. Um, I, does it have to be in London or can it be anywhere It can in the be world? wherever you want. Well, the Gemelli in Portofino is probably my favorite restaurant in the world because it belongs to two of my oldest friends. They're these two gorgeous twins who I grew up with and they just bring life and soul back to Portofino. They've taken Portofino back to where it was when we were kids because Portofino got lost for a bit. You know, Where was a fruit vendor suddenly became a Chanel shop. And now I think it's gone yeah. back to sort of catering more for, especially because of COVID, Italians started going back uh, and that and Italians don't want that. They want the fruit vendor. They want, mm -hmm. I mean, they don't want that in Portofino. They want that in Via Monte Napoleone in Milano, but they don't want that yeah. on the sea. They want a good restaurant, good food, good produce, not to be taken the Mickey out of price wise. Um, so that's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, there's a new restaurant actually in Portofino called the Splendido Mare, which is two Michelin star chef, which is out of this world, out of this world. There's a local pub here called the Bull which I absolutely love, in a place called Chalbury. Um, oh, it's lovely. Beautiful around there. Beautiful area. And beautiful. there's a wonderful pub called The Bull. There we go. Well, I finish my conversations with a few quickfire questions. So um, this podcast is sponsored by Gorillas. If you were stuck at home, like you have been for the past two years, <laughs> which three ingredients would you order from Gorillas? Basil. 
Well, it's just the ingredients for pesto, basically. Can <laughs> <laughs> I mix it up? <laughs> you, Jay, you got it. Basil. Basil. Pasta, obviously. And olive oil, I think. Perfect. Good olive oil. Good olive oil. Good olive oil. We get our olive oil from Puglia. Like, we Do get it, you? Well, we have, a, again, a friend. I love who, Puglia. And she sends me a case, like, every two months. Oh, fabulous. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to get you some. It's really good. Please. I, I love Puglia, actually. I went before it was sort of... Because now it's really becoming... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when we... I went, I think, about 10 years ago, and it was, like, barren it was wild. land. Yeah, it was really but, wild. But, like, oh, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, it still is beautiful, but, yeah, yeah, it's become a bit more touristic yeah. and all that. But Yeah. It's what happens. Yeah. It's what happens when I go to these places, Jack. <laughs> I make I make them fabulous, and um, I don't, I'm a trendsetter. What can I say? <laughs> I'll be watching closely when uh, you go to next. I know, God. <laughs> <laughs> what is the craziest food you've ever eaten? Ooh, alligator. Ooh, where was that? Yeah, I was in Florida. Of all oh, places. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, they do a lot of crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like, um, I'm gonna sound. I'm gonna say it, but it tastes like chicken. <laughs> gonna, yeah. It does taste like fatty chicken. Okay. Um. Yeah, that was definitely a, a nice. Tough one. What has been your most memorable meal? Uh, probably the last meal I had with my dad. I played. A, I cooked him a carbonara. Uh, just before he passed away, it wasn't my cooking that that killed him. <laughs> <laughs> I should say. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. That's awful. <laughs> I'm laughing too. He would be laughing too. He took that. I mean, he took that joke to okay. his grave, saying, "Cause okay. your carbonara did to me." Uh, but yeah, the last meal I cooked for my dad was a carbonara. Funnily enough, and I and I nailed it. I, I mean, oh, I was that. That was one of the few times in my life I felt pressure. I mm. knew it was going to be the last meal before he went into hospital, so it was like, "This has got to be a good one," and it was. My favorite snack of all time is a packet of crisps. What is your favorite flavor of crisps and why? I mean, salt and vinegar. This shows that I was born and raised in the UK. It's just, it's my childhood. That yeah. It's a school run. It's yeah. <laughs> like I'm in the back of my mom's car. The minute I'm in the back of her Ford Escort listening to like hot chocolate, I believe in miracles. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah you're that, taking that, it back. <laughs> that, that's where I am. Yeah. yeah. That's probably I mean, are we talking I... like a Walker's, just like a, a, a good oh, yeah. standard Walker's Green crisp? Pack yeah. Of wa- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Love it. No messing about. What food sums up happiness for you? Nutella. <laughs> it's not even okay, a food. A Jack, bit, n- I think that you and I might be soulmates. <laughs> that was quick, so too. I, I said I, that I, quick. I know. There, was, there wasn't even a breath there. Um, I actually now can't buy Nutella into my house. Because Please. because I don't trust myself. I'm only allowed to buy Nutella once a year oh my for Pancake that's, Day. That's, that's painful. I'm saying like once that, a week. Saying that, though, my husband bought some Nutella biscuits last night. I don't know if you know about these. Yes, They're like I these do. little circular things. I know them well. Well, half the packet's gone. You get them in the air. Oh, I bring them back for my kids. They're amazing. Fabulous. Oh, my God. The best thing that ever happened to me. I, I confess that I do occasionally sit in front of the TV with a spoon. Just a spoon. And it's like... Proper, but like, it's so good. Oh, even I just my love kids are Nutella. Like, it's so good. Yeah, it's and so it's, good. It's come up with some contro- controversy, but Ferrero, yeah, the man who started it, was amazing because again, post-war, <laughs> I'm going to give him some props. It was post-war, and nobody could afford chocolate. Yeah, he made a cho- He made chocolate affordable for the yeah. masses. <laughs> and Nutella. So, do was you that. like think? Do you like Ferrero Rochers and things like that as well? Of course, the inside. Yeah. <laughs> it's all yeah. the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's all. It's all there. It's all yeah. cut from the same cloth. Exactly. Literally. 
Final question. Live to eat or eat to live? Oh, God, that's profound and confusing at the same time. <laughs> it's my little bit of philosophy yeah, at I the like end, of a, end of a chat. Or eat. No, no, no. Live to eat. Live yeah. to eat. Live to eat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't I don't ask how many things are in this or what is that. No, 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 no. You just no, enjoy no. your food. Yeah, and appreciate if it tastes it. good, I trust my instincts. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, Jack, it was so lovely to finally sit Me down too. with each other. And yeah. I really hope that we can see each other in person. You know where I live, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Come by. Can you please bring your guitar? Um, and some Nutella. More... I'll bring your... and, uh, I'm going to break your Bring me rule. a pot I'll of bring... Nutella. <laughs> bring me some pesto lasa lasagna, please. That would be lovely. 100%. Um, bring Nile well, if you want. Well, come to our show on 13th of April, London. I would love to. Let's we'll make that happen. That would be really yeah, fun. For sure. It's the last you... show of the tour, so it'll be a fun Oh, one. great. Yes. <laughs> you can follow Jack on social media at Jack Savaretti. Until next time. Bye. Ciao. Thank you for tuning in. If you love what you hear, please subscribe and review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Crazy Sexy Food and check out the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel. Until next time. Bye.